Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is The Hedge Podcast where we talk about growing your wealth and living authentically. This week, I'm joined by YouTuber Damien Talks Money and as his name kind of suggests, that's a lot of what we discuss today. We talk about loads of things to do with money. We talk about the global stock markets, whether we're headed for a crash. We talk about staking crypto, Bitcoin's energy use. We talk about the active versus passive debate and a number of other different investing and financial topics. And Damien's a really interesting guy. His YouTube channel, Damien Talks Money, has grown really, really fast. We talk about that in in the episode today as well. He started it not really that long ago and he's got over 50 or almost 50,000 subscribers um, as I as I record this at the moment. So he's, he's grown really fast. He's got a really interesting way of bringing um, finance content, well, putting finance content out there. He has a really conversational, easy manner about him um, and his actual videos on YouTube are really quite entertaining. He likes to throw in a few, few gags and some um, kind of funny one-liners and that sort of thing while still bringing a lot of um, valuable knowledge. So it was really good to have Damien on the show to talk through his mindset around creating his content. Um, there's a lot more work that goes into it than what a lot of people uh, probably would expect. And um, he mentions a number of times that he's not the smartest guy in finance, but I think once you've listened to this episode, you'll realize or you'll see that he's got um, he's got a lot of really good knowledge on, on lots of different investing topics. His his take on different things is um, he, he's pretty he understands the game really really well. Uh, and I think there's some really valuable stuff in this episode for you to take from from this conversation with Damien. As always, if you want to check out his channel or find more information from The Hedge, you can find everything from me at thehedge.io and the links to Damien's um, social accounts and his, his YouTube channel can be found in the show notes. But for now, let's get into the episode. So Damien, thanks very much for coming on The Hedge Podcast. Really nice to have you on, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good stuff. So today, um, like I say, I thought it'd be really good to get you on and just talk through some of the some of the issues that are going on in in the investing world, in the finance world. There's obviously always news happening, and with with COVID and with inflation and crypto, it's um, it feels like a bit of a it feels like a bit of a crazy time. I mean, I feel like we've been saying that for a couple of years now, but everything feels not normal in a lot of ways. What do you think? How long does it feel not normal before you say this is the normal, I guess? But um, yeah, it feels like, for especially the last 24 months and longer, it has everything, anything that you expect to happen, I would almost bet the complete opposite is going to happen. It's kind of how I feel about the markets and life nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. How long, how long is not normal before it, rec- I mean, that's, that's the like cliche phrase at the moment, isn't it? like the new normal, but yeah. like it, it really does feel, it really does feel like it was speaking of just before we, we jumped on and hit record about, you know, moving, moving house and that sort of stuff. And like a lot of people that I know are moving really far away from, from where they're working and from where they've always lived because that, that commute and having to be tied to the office, it's not really a thing anymore, is it? No, I mean, it isn't for now, but I know businesses at senior levels and I know that they spend a lot of money on office space and they're tied into that for a long time. And from a productivity standpoint, I think that companies will put pressure on people to be back in the office when they can. So I do wonder if people, you know, make that migration and then realise, oh, no, actually, there's some downward pressure here from from senior people within the business to be in the office because they want, they want you in the office so they can keep tabs on you. You know, that's. And that's sort of how a business likes it. I do think at the minute, there's so many uh, job offerings that you can really come negotiate hard around flexibility and wages and all these points. So I think for now, while it's it's almost like an employee's market, isn't it? In the sense of, uh, you know, you can renegotiate your packages and stuff. I think once that changes, we might see that change. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see. We're going to talk a little bit about property investment we'll touch on that later on but it's a good point you know i know i know my company it's it's all well and good to have everyone working from home but i think they're locked into like a 10-year lease with a 10-year option or something insane so it's not a cost they can just cut is it no and some of these like london offices are very expensive yeah big time and yeah any any major city these days really um but definitely london in particular so look why don't um Obviously, this is a podcast. You're big on YouTube. Don't tend to do as much in kind of the podcasting space. So I tend to find that people are often quite 
tribal in a way about the kind of the the channel where they they spend the most time so you're either really big into youtube spend a lot of time on youtube or you don't necessarily really watch it at all and you're big into podcasting or you spend a lot of time on instagram or whatever um so for those people maybe who, who don't spend a lot of time on youtube haven't come across you before it'd be good to get a bit of a uh, of an insight to kind of your background and and what made you want to start damien talks money yeah okay so from my perspective, I'm on YouTube. I've grown up with YouTube as an influence uh, to me. So I, I consume a lot of YouTube content uh, more that I don't watch TV really or anything like that. And I think, you know, I, like most people, I stumbled across personal finance content. I got into that and I saw the American, the American boys, you know, the Andre Jicks, Graham Steppens. If you're on the YouTube finance space, you'll know who those guys are. They're the, like the biggest in the scene. I just thought that the, the, I had this burning desire in the back of me for for a long while, thinking someone could do what they're doing in America in in the UK, and there are some people already in the UK doing it. I just felt there was an angle there for an entertainment value. Um, I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the mm. room, but I feel that I could I could liven it up a bit. Was kind of my my thought process. And then I was furloughed for four weeks, and I thought, well, now's the time to do that. Yeah, awesome. And I think that that is definitely for me when I you know I, I spend a bit of time on YouTube as well. I think. It's definitely where where you stand out. There's some great personal finance content on YouTube, but I can see why your channel's grown so fast because it is very different and very relatable. You know, if for anyone who's who's not watched any of Damien's videos, you know, it's very much about you know you talk to people like you would talk to your mates, don't you? Not standing up and doing a TED talk, really. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah, and I work hard to make it like that. Um, I think you know you know how hard it is to to be natural. And as soon as you turn a camera or a microphone on, it all goes out the window a little bit. I just <laughs> think that it doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room. If no one will listen to you, it, it does. You know, it's pointless. So I always thought there was a way to kind of make this a little bit more relatable and understandable because I knew that I would speak to my mates around investing. And I would have conversations that I felt were basic and they were like, you just need to take this back even further. You know, what's an index fund, et cetera. And mm. I felt that that was the area that I could kind of attack. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a trap, I think, that people can easily fall into in any industry, really. It's like if you if you surround yourself with something for a certain amount of time, you get to a level of experience where you don't, you don't understand, you can't appreciate how basic or how hard it is to understand the basics if you've not learned the basics. And I think that's definitely something that that personal finance content creators can fall into. It's like, oh, everyone knows what active versus passive is. So I'm going to reference that in my content, but not explain what it is. And a lot of people are sitting there going, what the, what the fuck's passive? What, what does that mean? I've got no idea. Yeah, the content that, that gave me the propellant initially was literally go here, click here, move mouse here, kind of like button click on how to invest um and you know it might sound simple but it took it took me until i was in my 20s to start investing because i had this notion that it was you know complex algorithms and i needed to be a maths genius and this perception that's put in place probably by the industry itself to protect its commissions means that we have this perception that it's a lot more complicated and i think when someone shows you how easy it is like you know from an index fund perspective i'm not i'm not saying all investing is easy um, but from a, you know, getting started perspective, you kind of like, really, is it that easy? Is it, you know, mm -hmm. once you understand that concept of just buying a whole marketplace and passively investing, it's kind of like a light bulb goes on. Yeah, totally. I think you're exactly right. I think there's been years and decades of, uh, an industry that tries to make investing look like it's out of reach without a middleman, someone like me as a financial planner in the middle, you know, and, and yeah. the reality is that for a really high proportion of people, you just don't, you don't need that. It is pretty straightforward. Um, I always think it's actually, it's like, um, like health and fitness sort of thing. The actual nuts and bolts of what you do is actually really straightforward. The actual hard part about investing is like the mental side, like going through yeah. a market correction, staying invested, uh, and kind of understanding that side of things rather than what is a share, what is a guilt, you know, that sort of thing. Consistency. So using your mm. gym analogy, the consistency is far more important than the exercise that you do. It's just showing up and putting the reps in. And I think with investing, it's that staying in the market consistently is is the consistency you need. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So staying on the on, on the kind of on the channel for the time being, um, it grew really fast, didn't it? I think um yeah. i had a look at your kind of went back to your past videos and like the second one i know obviously you would have had views since 
since then, but it had like it's got like a quarter of a million views. Was it your second video? Is that actually how it happened, or have you kind of yeah. gotten rid of some of the old ones that that you you weren't happy no, no. with or, or something? No, that is how it happened. So that's crazy. Um, that must have been like you must have been gets... sitting in your house going, "What the what the fuck is going on?" <laughs> well, to be honest with you, that video's got seven to eight hundred views a day consistently for about two years. So that two fifty yeah. has been a long time coming. But yeah. I speak to a lot of I speak to a lot of creators in the space, and they post their second video and no one watches it. I posted my mm. second video and fifty people watched it the first day, then fifty people, then fifty people, and then it just grew and grew and grew from there. I I, I think I was uh, lucky from the start uh, in that sense that the videos, every video I posted, gathered views from from the very start. It had that momentum. I mean, I I, I did quite a lot of research around keywords long chain keywords, uh, targeting search. I was quite deliberate in my approach. I think that helped me initially. Um, I think if you're going to do anything, you've got to treat it like a business. And I think people often kind of think, oh, YouTube, it's, it's a side hustle, but there's a lot of potential there if you do it right. So, but yeah, it, to answer your question, from the second video I made, basically, it just kind of, it just kind of kept going. And that video to this day still delivers 20 30 subscribers a day i think about twelve thousand people have subscribed to my channel from that video alone mm. yeah that's huge isn't it and do you find um has it been has it been hard to make obviously that that's your most successful video how do you find it in terms of you know making subsequent videos has it been kind of a, a steady increase in the initial views you're getting the kind of overall traction or is it literally like video by, by video will will perform or die depending on you know how good of a job it is how much it re resonates with people yeah i mean there's certainly there was a period of time where every video i released was bigger than the previous and i thought i've got this made <laughs> and then, and this yeah. was in the period where it was kind of GameStop. so i think there was a there was orders of magnitude amount of interest within the investing space and then it kind of died off during the summer and i think that's really where i kind of uh, like you know proved myself when I kind of went through that period where a lot of other creators that kind of rose with me in that time fell off or got disinterested. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I could, I could look at it from a perspective of the second video I ever made is the biggest video I've ever made and I've never rivaled it. Or I could look at mm -hmm. it from the perspective of I've got, you know, 50,000 subscribers and the videos that I make now reach, you know, 20,000 people a video or whatever. I'm far more interested in, what the worst piece of content content does in terms of views than I am the best because I think viral videos are out of my hands. You know, if mm. I release ten videos, I want to know what the worst of the ten is because as long as that worst yeah. is getting better, then you know I'm in a good place. That's really interesting because I think that kind of that kind of links with your point you're saying before about um, about treating YouTube as a business. And we are going to get into some investing topics as well. There's a few things I want to talk to you in terms of you know actual you know, stock market inflation type stuff, but I'm just interested in, in this side of things. And uh, I think, I think you're exactly right in that a lot of people have this idea that they're not happy in the jobs. Um, they, you know, feel like they want their life to look a little bit different. And that's a, that's a lot, a lot of what I talk about. It's about making money, but having an end, an end point, not an end point, but a, a means, you know, a means to an end in terms of you, you're making that money in order to live the lifestyle that you want to live or do things that you want to do. And I think, that's often where people get stuck, don't they? Is that they have a kind of a vague idea, but not necessarily the understanding that you have to take very concrete steps and work very hard if you want to make a big change like making a living off YouTube. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate kind of how how much work it goes into it. So, you know, a, 50, a 15 minute video might take me 30, 40 hours to make in total. And I'm mm -hmm. trying to put out one a week around a full-time job, two kids, you know, so that I think most people will just not do it because the commitment level is, is, is high. For me, I was lucky in the sense that it grew quickly. So I had a motivation there. I, if I was two years into this now, still scratching around for a hundred views, I don't know if I would still be doing it. You know, I set myself a goal of 12 months. I just think people need to realize that if, if there's traffic within a niche, if, if they're going online on whatever medium it is, podcast, YouTube, and there is people consuming that content, if you can offer something different within that niche, you will get an audience. And I think that's all you need to think about. That's I went in and said, there's people watching this content in the UK. I can make content that's different to everyone else's. 
a certain proportion of that audience is going to like my version of different. So that's kind of how I approached it. If you're just putting out the same thing as everyone else, you might struggle. And I do see a lot of creators just replicating each other and not really trying anything different. Mm. And you've got, it doesn't really matter how you're different in a lot of ways, does it? I mean, I, you know, like on YouTube, you see people who differentiate by, you know, you differentiate by the way you deliver the message. You mentioned about, you know, entertainment mixed with education. Whereas there are other people who do really well in the finance space who are just really smart. They're just incredibly detailed yeah, people. Exactly. They they provide you analytical yeah. information that is, you know, so in depth and that's going to re- resonate with different people. So I think that's the important point is you don't have to do something that you hate. You don't have to do it in a way that you hate. It's just about finding where your your strengths match with, like you say, a need that is out there in a niche. To you know, I, to not be the smartest guy in finance. Um, I've got a career in finance and that, but I'll, I'll hold my hands up and say I'm no genius. That's intimidating for me that there's people out there that are essentially with you know op- swimming in the same waters as me. But they probably turn around and are intimidated by the fact that like the way I present and the way I can crack jokes and stuff. So everyone's got their skill set, and you kind of just need to lean into what, what you are. But I think you need to be very intentional at the start if you want it to work because the competition's getting better and better now within, within the finance, within YouTube, within anything, but it's still there for the taking the opportunity and the scale is massive. Um, I used to be one of those people that, I always looked at the online and thought, how are people making money out of this? How, how is people making money out of the internet? And now that I am making money out of the internet, all I can see is opportunities online. Yeah. It's, it's like you, you, your eyes are open to it. I think everyone should have a YouTube channel, <laughs> personally. Yeah, it teaches you a lot, regardless of whether you end up making money from it or, or being successful. It does teach you a lot, for sure. Um, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk like that because I think for anybody who maybe has watched a few of your videos you do them like and you mentioned this before you do them in such a way that it feels like you're just kind of rolling off the cuff you know making gags talking in a very kind of casual way but i could tell like you say from just having done videos myself at a much lower level than you but you can tell how much scripting and time and effort goes into it so i think that's really valuable to hear that because people could mistakenly watch those videos and say and think there's not a lot goes into that this guy's just rolled up with 50,000 subscribers and he's not you know just points the camera at himself for 13 minutes a week and Bob's your uncle. But um, I think, yeah, that's that's really valuable stuff there. No, most definitely not. I sit and stress over every line, every word. I record <laughs> yeah, yeah. for hours and, you know, edit it to, to the death. One of the reasons I don't have a podcast is because I'm not that confident in my ability just to talk without sounding like an idiot. So I hide behind the production. So to anyone out there that thinks that they can't, do it because they're not naturally gifted in front of camera. Go watch my first video and tell me that I was naturally <laughs> gifted in front of camera. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not. Yeah, you can learn any, any skill over time, can't you? Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's talk a little bit. Let's move into talking about investments. And I guess to, to start off with something I'm always interested in, um, in hearing from guys like you is that you, you, know, you get loads of people getting in, in contact with you, whether that's comments on your YouTube videos or DMs on Instagram, or you know whatever the case may be, um, and you, I'm sure you get a lot of stories and a lot of um, people telling you what they've been doing with their money. So, from your perspective, what do you think are, what do you see as being the kind of the biggest mistakes that people tend to make with money? Um, the first one is overcomplicating it and not getting started. Just sitting on the sidelines forever, thinking, oh, I'll wait till the next crash, or I'll wait for this, I'll wait for that. That you know. Um, all those people that sit on the sidelines over the last 12 months waiting for the crash have missed out on one of the, the best bull runs in history, you know? Uh, mm. So that, that is definitely top of the list. And then it's surprising to me how many people sit on the sidelines, um, don't invest and then come to me one day and go, Oh, Damien, I've invested. I've, I've put everything into Dogecoin. I'm like, what? <laughs> you've just sat on the sidelines yeah. for, for a year. And then, you know, cause you're so cautious. And then that's, that's the thing you've gone for. Yeah. Not starting and then being not diversifying at all. Um, you know, people don't. People think that oh, I'll buy Tesla, I'll buy Google, I'll buy this, and I'm diversified. Well, you're probably mm. not. You know, like um, so. I, th- I think those two are the main things. And then expectations. If I put a hundred pound in, you're not going to be a millionaire for a hundred pounds. You know, mm. like you, you need a few lifetimes for it to get there. 
So it's really basic stuff from, from beginners, I would say. Yeah, crypto's made that a lot worse though, to be fair, because there are there are some people that have put a hundred quid in and they're, they're millionaires. Yeah. So that it does make it tough, doesn't it, when you're yeah. trying to when you're trying to sell a more realistic kind of image. Yeah, but I remember when I was a kid, um, there was this story about a guy who set up a website where there was a hundred pixels on the website, and he sold each one. Yeah, of them for I remember a quid. that. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's like it's like he won the internet at that point and then everyone yeah. was like oh my god like you make a million quid by doing that and there was all these copycats but that's <laughs> one guy you know like these people i think i'm i'm long enough in the tooth now i mean i'm 33 but i think i've seen enough of these one person who rolls the dice and wins to know like that that isn't the norm yeah no definitely not definitely how, not. how many people are losing yeah yeah exactly i mean that's that's the case with anything it's survivorship bias as i say whether you're talking about startups or um or investing or, or whatever but um i think the point you make about people waiting on the sidelines becoming even more uh, more relevant now because we had this inflation's obviously been since basically july this year it's been kind of cranking up pretty hard um it was at four point uh 4.2 percent it was it's come out at 5.1 percent the last 12 months inflation at 5.1 percent in the uk um and that's the quoted yeah, figure mean, as well. I think I think we yeah. all know it's a bit higher than that. You know, real real inflation that affects people's lives, rents and things like this that aren't included. Yeah, no, totally, uh, uh, exactly right. And that's that's the main concern is because you know if you're if infla- inflation's obviously been quite low the last few few years, really, relatively speaking. So waiting on the sidelines, it's not great but you've not been losing much money in real terms. But that's that really changes. If you're talking about 5% inflation and you're getting 0.15 on NS&I bonds or you're getting 0.23 on a bonus introductory rate on your cash account, that loses, that makes you poorer pretty bloody quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, massively quickly. Um, I think, it, and it will make people panic, <laughs> you know, because like you say, 5%, and there's a lot of people have a lot of cash, you know, and when you're talking like 30, 40 grand in cash, Five percent a year is a, is a chunk of money, you know. You're losing a, fl- a holiday a year, aren't you? Just just for having your cash on the sidelines. Mm. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, they need to. They need to. They need to. They need to move, don't they? The, you, this whole point around interest rates and stuff, and you know, tapering of tapering of the the quantitative easing and things. I think inflation is clearly there. It's clearly kicking everyone's ass. I think I'm not sure when they will but i think interest rates probably need to go up don't they just to slow things down a bit well that's the concern right so they're talking about uh, monetary policy committees committees meeting tomorrow um i read something today that the imf the international monetary fund were kind of giving the bank of england a bit of stick for not raising them sooner but this is the problem that we've got and that's why the 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 term stagflation has been coming up because obviously inflation is when you know you know this but inflation is obviously when the prices are going up but generally when generally when we're seeing high inflation in the economy, we're also seeing a good economy. You know, one of the reasons inflation is going up is because there's a lot of economic activity, wages going up, there's more competition for workers. But we're in this weird situation where the economy's not doing great. People are feeling the pinch, people are feeling stretched, yet inflation's high so that if interest rates go up, it makes the problem worse. But then by the same token, they can't really afford not to put interest rates up because it makes inflation worse. I don't envy them. It's a, it's a pretty uncomfortable kind of situation to be in, really. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, you know, I've seen what's happened to house prices in the Northwest in the last 12 months. And like, that can't continue. It's ridiculous because mm-hmm. it's just dragging rents to a point now where people, you know, there was a, there was a place that, that was being rented near me. It was £800 12 months ago. It's 1300 now. You know that's mm. that's unmanageable yeah, it's mad. rise in rental prices like for people so yeah I, someone someone's going to feel it whatever happens aren't they um i guess i don't know it, the supply chain inflation that everyone talks about how, how long what's your opinion on how long that lasts for because everyone talks about you know the supply chain is disrupted and, and needs to get back on its feet how, how long do you think that's going to last I think it's going to last a while. Like that's why I don't really understand all the all this talk about um, transitory inflation. Like, okay, but then what's your different definition of transitory? Like five years? I don't call that transitory. Like, yeah, I'm sure it will. It's going to pass yeah. at some point, but uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not confident. And um, I think this stuff, all this talk about Omicron and stuff, the last few weeks, 
it's kind of um, confirmed my feelings on that because you know we're at a point in the UK where we've got a huge level of vaccination. We're all we're onto our booster vaccinations, which supposedly was the thing where it's like, okay, we can go back to normal, and yet restrictions are coming in again. You know, there's a lot of talk about even further restrictions coming in again. Every time that happens, there's a knock-on effect to the to the supply chain. I think I'm sure you know a lot of people who are still. Um, having to self-isolate until they get negative tests. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but like if you go, if you have a contact and you have to go do a PCR test, that could take, if you're lucky, a couple of days. I've heard of people taking seven to 10 days to get the PCR test back. So even if they're negative, you've got all these people having all these little bits of time out of the workforce. And that adds up to just... You know, if you think of it millions like, of days of lost manpower. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If you think of it as like a really yeah. simple analogy of like a factory line that has people on literally on a factory line doing their jobs. If you're pulling people out like for little bits at a time, it's yeah, I, I don't reckon it's going anywhere anytime soon. What 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 are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean I I I tend to agree. I think as well, obviously there's there's other factors at play. Um how much has Brexit impacted our supply chain? domestically versus COVID as well. That, that's a big mess that's all tied up together, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's kind of hard to separate. You know, I don't, I don't want to comment on it too much because people have very, very split opinions. But <laughs> I think yeah. the, the world the world is suffering, suffering from a supply chain perspective. But we have added pressures domestically from points around, uh, you know, Brexit specifically, et cetera, that, that co- are compounding that as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, HGV drivers has been the obvious one, but like care care workers is, is is another. Just so many industries where it's 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 a big big problem. HGV is the one that people feel. Um, but mm. my friend owns a, a farm that pick fruit, and he's paying people seventy grand a year to pick fruit because they can't get the staff. He's like, we're just running, we're running at a loss essentially. But if we don't, it just all goes to rot. So what do we do? Mm. We need the cash flow. So we have to, it's, it's, it's an equivalent rate of 70 grand a year because it's like 30 odd pound an hour just to get people to pick fruit. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's all over the place. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's one, it's one of those ones where I do feel like we are, well, the word it's not being used as much lately, actually, but the whole thing, the word that always gets banded around with COVID is like unprecedented times. But I, I, yeah. I literally do think, you know, if we look back to what happened in like the 70s, or we look back at like, um, you know, the, the Wall Street crash back in the 20s. Like we still talk about the 1920 stock market crash, 1929 stock market crash now because it was so, it hadn't happened before. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens over this kind of five, 10 year period that they're looking back on in 100 years as something that shapes government and, and fiscal and monetary policy like going forward because we just, no one knows what they're doing basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And no one's dumped this amount of money into the system so quickly and, and you know, mm. and seen the effects. No one's ever yeah. locked down the whole world. <laughs> There's been a lot of firsts, hasn't there? So over the last 24 months, I guess it's an exciting time to be alive is one way to look at it. You know, we'll, we'll be remembered as a point in history. Like, you know, we'll, we'll talk, this will be the stuff you talk to your grandkids about, Jason, no doubt. Mm. What's that uh, Chinese proverb? May you live in interesting times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd take, I'd take boring times to end. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that I cover a lot of information about investing. There's lots of info available in past episodes, like talking about the current state of the stock market, discussing issues with inflation, or explaining what different types of assets do and how they fit into an investment portfolio. I do encourage you to listen back to those previous episodes, but I've also now got a way for you to get up to speed much quicker than that. And that's with my new ebook, Modern Investing Fundamentals. In this book, I explain all the major types of investment assets, including stocks, bonds, and crypto. I break down key terms such as inflation and diversification, and I explain exactly how to create an investment portfolio that's right for you. As usual, the aim is to make sure all of this is as simple and easy to understand as possible. And the best part is that you can grab a copy for free. All you need to do is go to thehedge.io, drop your email address, and a copy will be sent right to your inbox. So I think um, all that kind of leads well onto one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is cryptocurrency. It's kind of, it, over these last couple of years, it's gone from a something that a few nerds knew about 
and there was like a few currencies floating around and now it's just normal it's mainstream it's part of part of you know mainstream financial services mainstream investing um it's on the news on bbc news you know we, we're hearing about it a lot obviously when it comes to bitcoin there's lots of people that and money printing and you know those sorts of things there's a lot of hardcore bitcoiners who feel that bitcoin is the answer and solution to all our problems um what is your take on crypto and bitcoin and you know web3 nfts all of this pro proliferation of, of new technology and currency that we're seeing it's a big question isn't it so I think that obviously a lot of people will, will sit there and go, oh, blockchain is a really interesting piece of technology. Um, it's going to change things. And I do, I do think that is the case. And I think the argument of comparison to it as to the dot-com bubble where there was the blockchain was the internet. There was a lot of interesting technology. And then there was all these websites that were effectively placed on the internet and a lot of them failed. I think that is a, a relevant point when you're talking about specific tokens. You know what you're talking mm -hmm. about? all these different cryptocurrencies that are popping up. If we talk about Bitcoin first, the, what I like about Bitcoin at this point in time as a real, real case, use case right now is the fact that you can convert energy into value at source. And I think mm. there's a lot of countries that have energy supplies that were, you know, geothermal, oil, whatever, that, that in the past weren't very useful to them. Whereas now they might have an ability to basically say, okay, well, we'll park some, some, you know, mining equipment here effectively and convert that energy into value at source. I think that's quite a compelling uh, value mm. case for a lot of countries. And as long as Bitcoin specifically, because of its finite nature and how, how big the network is, as long as the value holds in that and the trust holds there, I can see that as being energy into value i see as something that is quite valuable and i think as we progress we'll look at energy more like value anyway um i think you know elon musk's whole proposition is a lot like that it's around the energy piece now with the others ethereum again i think there's really strong use cases i think whenever there's an unregulated industry though people the sharks will come out and i think mm. a large proportion of the whole industry is scams at the minute but yeah. I hold crypto. I've got I've got quite a lot, so yeah. that probably tells you all you need to know. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like about it. There's a lot to to learn, but I think you do have to understand it at least to a certain point before you go throwing your money. Because, like you say, if you do throw it into something you see on Twitter and you lose all your money or someone scams you, like there is no comeback. There's there's no government that can help you out. There's no insurance scheme. There's no nothing. Um, and I think that's a point that I keep trying to drive home is that like if you get scammed, there's no one you can go and have a complaint to. The police aren't going to do anything because the person was probably anonymous and they can't they they can't do anything. It's not, you know? Um, yeah, the squid, the squid token was a, yeah. an amazing example of that really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you make a, a really interesting point actually about about Bitcoin and, and the mining. That's something that I've been learning a bit more of recently because one of the biggest criticisms that gets levied on Bitcoin is that it is uses so much energy. Um, and I kind of only recently, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review which was um, explaining that it is true that it uses a lot of energy, but energy doesn't necessarily correlate to pollution. And that was a really good point. Yeah. Like it's kind of thrown out there as like it uses all this energy, uses as much energy as Belgium or something. And you think, shit, that's that's not good. But then wind power creates energy. But that doesn't, the wind doesn't pollute us, does it? So that's a, that's a really interesting point because the article was going on then about um, what they call orphan sources of energy, which is kind of what you're talking about there, where like, for example, there's some place in China that gets a massive amount of rainfall and they've got hydroelectric energy there, but it's only for a certain um, period of time throughout the year and they have way too much than what they can use. So they end up dumping a lot of it. And that, like you were just saying there, is a really interesting use case for let's harness that. We don't need to put it on a, in a battery and send the battery somewhere. We don't need a pipeline to try and send anything anywhere. Set up some server rooms, mine some Bitcoin and convert that and actually use it. I think that's something that you don't hear of much really in mainstream. No, I, I, you know, what doesn't use energy? Uh, I mean, like every, everything consumes energy. And I think to, to say that Bitcoin is the problem, I think we have a, a clean energy problem. We don't have a, a dirty cryptocurrency problem. Um, one, one example would be, um, you know, gas burn off. 
where they, they, they essentially burn gas at, at oil refineries because the gas is a, is a waste product to them obtaining oil. They, instead of burning that gas, they can burn it still, but convert that into, into Bitcoin at source. That again, mm. that is a completely, that, that's actually cleaner in that sense because it generates that value. Um, or, you know, a volcano like El Salvador. I mean, El Salvador is a bit of a wild place. Uh, they, they, I mean, I don't know if I'd like to live there personally with everything that's <laughs> going on. And they're like the, they're the experiment for Bitcoin, aren't they? But they're doing some interesting yeah. things. And, you know, they've got, a, they've got a crypto mine inside of a volcano. You know, people talk about the energy usage. Who, who's turning their lights on with, with volcano juice? I don't know many mm. people that are. So, <laughs> like you say, not, not, all, not all energy is dirty energy. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting in the next few years. Um, I saw something. I mean, they're obviously got those the um, Bitcoin-backed bonds, um, which pays a lower interest rate than their their normal bonds because it's supposedly you know it's backed by an asset, a volatile one, but it's backed by an asset. Um, and I saw something today about the first um, not in the not in the UK, it was in the US, but the first regulated um, Bitcoin-backed mortgages where you could get a lower interest rate on your mortgage by by putting up Bitcoin securities. So yeah, there's lots uh, lots going on. Um, in the space yeah i've traditionally used premium bonds as a place to store my emergency fund uh, mainly because the bank and interest rates are so low that i might as well have a play on a lottery essentially to see if yeah. i can hit a jackpot um because you know keeping it in an easy access savings account i'm getting like you said earlier under half a percent uh, so what's the point now i've found recently more and more that staking against um stable coins Actual, I don't, I don't really like Tether for quite well publicized reasons, but USDC, which is Coinbase's own, I've been staking that now for well over a year and, and well staking or, you know, I take it and lend it to them. They lend it out, whatever, however you want to describe that relationship. And 9%, I get 9%. It's, it's mm. almost too good to be true. For someone like me, I'm very much like that. That doesn't make sense. But when you look mm -hmm. at it from a perspective of, people within the cryptocurrency industry really struggle to get their hands on dollars because traditional finance won't lend to them. So they will pay mm -hmm. quite good rates to, to secure what is effectively dollars in the USDC or whatever, so that they can short and trade or do whatever they want to do. So I do, I do sit there and think, you know, you're talking about bonds and stuff like this. Some of the ability to generate yield on, like I can, I can take effectively a thousand pounds of my, £30,000 emergency fund or whatever and completely hedge against inflation with that couple of grand through USDC um, mm. on a platform like Coinbase, which I would say is, is relatively trustworthy um, and just completely destroy any inflation risk. I think that to me is like absolutely game changing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there, are, there just are so many possibilities, but I think um, kind of going back to your kind of earlier point that you're making at, at when we first started chatting is I think the problem is is that people can start focusing on that stuff what I would call the margins of your financial plan of your investing strategy over the the kind of more the, the nuts and bolts the basics where you want the majority the majority of your funds for most people so I think um I think you're, it's a really good point there's loads of stuff out there but I think for people who are considering that type of thing or going deep into crypto you need to get need to do that after you're comfortable with the basics um, and one of the things I, I wanted to, to talk to you about um, today was about as basic as it gets really and that's the idea of uh, well the, the kind of the two main approaches to investing which is you know an active approach to investing like using an active fund manager or, or passive like Vanguard which you which you mentioned at the start and I know you're a fan of Vanguard but what's your take overall on the kind of active versus passive debate? Traditionally, I've always kind of lent on the, the data and said that, you know, why would you why would you go active when passive has knocked the socks off it for quite a while? The more that I kind of research into the space, the more that I do think active has a place. Um, certain certain areas of investing, for example, ESG, I, I find it hard to believe that you could have a passive ESG approach, because I think if you really care about mm. ESG factors, how are you applying that screening if it's passively? Yeah. You know, like, that doesn't make sense to me. I think you need a team there to, to really be working with the businesses to ensure that ESG component is being applied. I also think as well, certain countries, I think maybe an active approach where there's, a, where there's experience there might work. I think it's hard for me because of my age and stuff. 
I've seen just passive knock the socks off most things for quite a while um, mm -hmm. because of fees and just performance. I, you know, I think for that reason, everyone touts index funds as the, as the thing, but it might come a day where active has its, its moment. I, I personally think everyone should have a passive element and, and that should be the backbone of their portfolios from, from me anyway, uh, just because I think fee reduction is, is the most important thing. Um, and I think a lot of active fund managers charge quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if nothing else, having uh, passive managers be so successful as they have been, at least is putting some, or has been putting some pressure on, on active managers' fees. I feel like they have have come down quite a lot. But um, yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I think for the bulk of kind of the core allocation for most people's portfolios, if you're talking about a market like the US, you know, the US stock market is is scrutinized so heavily the chances of anybody being able to find any any outperformance above the market is is basically none you know mm. in my opinion like there's just too much liquidity there's too much money too many research dollars that are going into it um but you know from my perspective what i'm looking at i think you mentioned a couple of examples there i i would say the same sort of thing is that if if you're having an allocation to kind of neat more niche countries like if you're investing in taiwan or japan you know, I would say that's probably a market where the overall knowledge in in on a world scale, the knowledge of those markets is probably significantly lower. So if you've got a fund manager who is on the ground, lives in Japan, knows Japan, works with Japanese people and understands the culture and the markets, it's probably something that's worth paying somebody a little bit of extra money to, to actually put their expertise and put that knowledge in those relationships to good use. Do you remember the Jeeper to India fund? I don't know if that ever came across your like your horizon in the back in the day it was quite a big fund and i think at the time india was like a place where everyone's like it's going to be the next china but no one knows anything about it um and mm. it, it delivered yeah. you know 20 30 percent returns for four or five years and then absolutely imploded for a few years after and was like a real <laughs> a real case of like active management um you know because people people piled into it because of the returns but the guy the guy the guy who managed it at the time, he, he, he claimed to know India well, and I think he did. But I think that was a country that was so steeped in corruption and volatility and a lot of other issues that were outside of his point. And I think when you're talking about countries, like you say, like niche countries, niche countries are niche for a reason. And that can often be because some yeah. of the factors around them make the markets a little bit more wild. So I think you've got to factor that in as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it always comes down to the same thing, doesn't it? Diversification. Like really, you know, if, if you're keeping it simple, there's so many risks in investing that can be not not um, removed completely, but removed to the point where they're not something that you need to worry about too much as long as you have enough diversification in your portfolio. Yeah. It's hard though when you see someone all in on something, getting 50% returns in a month or whatever. But yeah, I think it'll come good for us when it all does come crashing down, won't it? When we're well diversified. Yeah, which is, I um, my uh, the podcast episode that came that was released today. Uh, I was talking about that about investing. The title was "Should You Invest at All Time Highs?" Because it's always the way money flows into the markets at a much greater rate when they've performed incredibly well. And we had, you know, you mentioned one of the best years ever. I think it's twenty six percent year to date in the US. It was like sixteen percent last year. Um, do you think we're due a correction soon or do you reckon this the money printer is going to keep things flying high for, for a, a little bit of time yet? I definitely think we're due a correction. Whether we'll get one is a whole different story and I try not to <laughs> I try not yeah. to pay too much mind to that because it's, there's so many quotes, isn't there? You know, the, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent or I've seen more people lose money, you know, trying to time the market than has actually been lost from crashes and things. I, I mean... 12 months ago, I would have told you that if I had to, I would have placed a bet on the fact that the market was going to take a dip because look at what we've been through. The, the world shut down. Do you know what I mean? And we just shook it off in a few weeks. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I just consistently invest. And then when I see the market tanking, I consistently invest more, you know, on a regular basis. I think when when the, um, March, I think it was in 2020, when, when we saw that, that really quick drop, I just moved from buying monthly to every single day. And that's that worked for me and that's that's what i will do i always have a cash allocation on the side yeah makes heaps of sense you, none of us can time the market so just set things up so you don't have to worry don't have to worry don't have to think about it really yeah buy it all the way down and back up again 
and you'll you'll hit the bottom then and you can go around saying like oh i time the market if you like <laughs> showing people that you bought on the bottom day but in yeah. reality you just bought every day <laughs> yeah i actually saw an interesting um it was a thread on twitter i don't know if you're on twitter but it was like um preston preston paisha paisha i can't i can't remember how to say his name but the value he, guy who likes bitcoin yeah yeah exactly yeah. did you see that thread it was like everyone was retweeting it no i haven't seen it so he was basically saying which is true which is what you just mentioned that we've gone through like this insane couple of years and yet if you flew down from an alien planet and looked at our stock market you'd think we'd had the most amazing couple of years ever like everyone's having a great time everyone's just loving life making heaps of money and so he overlays the performance of the s&p 500 with um basically converts that back into into us dollars because he's explaining that whilst your investments your investments that were worth a hundred thousand dollars um three years ago have gone up and they're now worth you know, $175,000, there's been so much more money put into the system that if you convert that back to the, the per dollar increase, it's actually like 6% over the last three years or something like that. It's crazy. I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards because it's really yes, interesting. Please. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If if everyone's a millionaire, no one is kind of thing. If everyone, You know, if it's all going up, mm. it doesn't <laughs> really make much of a difference. Yeah. So one of the... um. The, the last kind of asset classes I wanted to touch on just briefly, really, but we talked about yields um, a little bit and the income that you can or lack of that you can earn from the bank account and some of the alternatives in crypto. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing pop up a little bit more um, is like property and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those weird allocations where even if you're investing in like a, like a Vanguard multi-asset fund, there will be a section of property, but I don't think many people kind of understand too much what property and infrastructure actually is really within a portfolio so um do you kind of have any thoughts on that on, on property infrastructure as an asset class is it something you just kind of ignore do you pay a little bit of attention to it what's your kind of take on that well i've got some reads from a property perspective so i think the one that mm -hmm. I, I did quite well on was the the tritac you know the big box kind of stuff um that that did yeah. that has continued to do well for me i had a look at it because obviously before we came on, I saw that, is it, is it PAVE is quite a big one, or PAVE, the Global X US Infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to have done yeah. really well in the last, basically since, since the drop. Um, I used to work in, in this field of, of projects being built. The one thing I'd worry about from an infrastructure build perspective is a lot of infrastructure projects get delayed massively and they run massively over budget or don't get built at all. And a lot of the companies that work within the infrastructure space really struggle <laughs> with cash flow. I know this because we had it. I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know these funds well enough to, to comment really. But how are the how are the returns set out? You know, are you are you buying into a business or buying a fund that then is engaging in infrastructure projects? Is that what they're doing? Um, so usually they're not um, they're not developing the infrastructure projects. Usually they are they they hold the assets, so they tend to be more of an income play. So they okay. you know, like a simple example would be like a, like a toll bridge. Yeah, so yeah. they don't the company doesn't necessarily build the toll bridge. They purchase the toll bridge and then they make projections, obviously, on what level of of tolls they're going to generate from that. So it's more of an income based asset rather than a than a kind of capital appreciation off the off the build the main concern that i see with property funds uh, and infrastructure falls into this this as well is that um a huge problem we saw in 2008 i was just new into the financial planning industry financial services industry in 2008 um bit of a baptism of fire it was like a join and then three months later it was like the worst financial crash in history um but they freeze they freeze the funds i'm sure you've come across this before um because if you've got a fund manager who's running an equity fund and they've got a lot of redemption. They've got a lot of people that want their cash out because they're scared. Not they can assets. just sell the equities. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not necessarily a good time to do it, but they can. Um, but if you've got if you've got a bridge you can't sell and it. you've got people that want their money back, you can't you can't easily sell a bridge. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the main thing concern I always have with that. And that's why I always you know, you see some of like some of the yields I'm looking at here, some of these infrastructure funds are like six and a half percent, five and a half percent, eight percent. Looks pretty attractive, but you know, if you can't get your money out when you want it, it's kinda of, you just gotta be really, really careful about it. Yeah. Do they have requirements for cash in terms of how much they have to, to keep in cash? 
Um, lucky, you know, the REIT structures I quite like because they're quite clearly defined in terms of how much income they have to pay out and how they spend the money and stuff. I, I find that structure works well for me from an income perspective. They're not, they're not a massive holding to me, but they're there. Are these the same? Yeah, so um, they are the same. Um, the issue with all of it is that they're kind of, they, they're built, the regulations make them do that with intolerance levels. But if you have something that's kind of crazy like 2008, it tends to blow a lot of those those models out of the water. REITs, um, which are, which are exchange traded, um, that is a really good um, uh, alternative because they are exchange traded. So you don't have that same that same issue um but it, uh, i find it's harder to find exchange traded infrastructure funds um so it's not definitely not a perfect scenario but i just think it's one of those ones i actually saw the initial article on the daily mail which i don't read for myself <laughs> but i read because there's lots of people that read it so i like to know what's kind of what and when i saw infrastructure funds pop up i thought you know i could just see someone piling a bunch of money into an infrastructure fund paying seven percent and then we we see a big market crash and it's like shit. What do I do now? If the Daily Mail's reporting on it, I would probably say that's a good sign that you shouldn't be buying them. <laughs> like, I mean, I think if it's, yeah, if, it's yeah, totally. if it's in the if it's in the main tabloids, it's probably done, isn't it? Surely, you know, if the, if it's on yeah. the front page of the Sun yeah, saying yeah, that you should buy so. the stock market, it's the shoe shine boy kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So look, um, before we kind of finish up, I just want to um, talk a little bit more about. Um, a little bit more about, I guess, alternative careers. I, I would, I would term it. I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, we talked a little bit about YouTube at the start. Um, we've seen in the US and to a certain degree in the UK what they're calling like the Great Resignation, with people chucking in the jobs and and you know having a bit more power over that. Um, do you think we're seeing a kind of permanent change with that? Do you think people are going to be doing more kind of freelancing, working for themselves, or do you think again that this is something that will kind of pass if life does go back to normal ish yeah i mean i'd be i'd be interested in the, the data around how many people have resigned and then got another job because this great resignation paints this mm. picture that everyone's just quitting their jobs and you know like starting their own little side hustles or whatever um i don't i don't think that that is the case and i think like a lot of the media is leaning on one side of it i think people are resigning from their jobs and going to new jobs um I do think that there will be a shift and the whole gig economy is there and I think that that will rise more and more. But I don't I do, I think the traditional format for work has been in place for quite a while and I think we're going to find it quite hard to shake that. People still need to pay the bills, don't they? And one thing I can tell you from YouTube is it's so inconsistent. You know, if, if I've got mm. I'm lucky that I've got a partner that that earns a good money as well. I work full-time currently. If I was to jump full time into YouTube and I had a lot of responsibilities, that's quite a nervous position. I don't think everyone is going to want mm. to take that massive leap. Um, I think now's a really good time to renegotiate how much you earn and, and look at your options. But I, d I don't know if we're going to see this massive shift in the way everyone works and everyone starts, you know, doing their own thing. Yeah, it doesn't have to be extreme, does it? It's an opportunity to push a little bit more towards what you want, what you want your ideal life would look like it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to chuck it all in and move to mexico or something no but i do think you know everyone should try and carve out a little bit of time i think for me what was eye-opening was i've spent my whole time head down in a career and you're nine to five plus an hour either side for a commute you come home you're knackered and at the weekend you spend it with the kids or the family or having a drink whatever your thing is as soon as i had four weeks off I started my YouTube channel and my life changed. It's like as soon as you get that little bit of time and you focus just that, all that energy that you put into nine to five on something else, it, you can probably quite surprise yourself with what you can do. You spend your whole career building stuff for the people, don't you? So if you focus that energy on yourself, mm. I think I think a lot of people out there are probably quite capable of building something quite cool pretty quickly. And I think the tools are all there now for mm. us. Anything that you need is on Fiverr. Mm. You know, if you need a graphic designer or whatever, it's all there. Yeah. So other than getting the views, obviously getting some some money coming in from it. What is what's been the the what's been the biggest thing you've learned or the biggest takeaway you've got from starting the channel so far? I think we spend so much of our time 
worrying about what people smarter than us think about what we have to say. When I think in reality, what you need to worry about is what all the people who don't know as much as you have to say about what you have to say. So I think most people are put off from doing things in their life because they think I'm not the best at it. I'm not the smartest. I'm not this. I don't think any of that matters because wherever, whatever knowledge point you're at in something, there's a million people behind you that don't know anything. And the internet gives you access to those people. That's kind of what I've learned. Yeah, that's really good advice. So what's the plan for you over the next kind of 12 months or so in terms of growing the channel, in terms of other things you want to pick up on top of it? What, what are you thinking for, for Damien Talks Money? Yeah, um, I need to scale the amount of content that I make. I think I've got proof of concept and I'm just nervy about making the leap from my full-time job. Um, hope, hopefully my employees yeah. don't listen to this, but I should probably quit my job and go at it full-time and, and, see, and see where I can take it from there. I'd just like to make more content um, and, and have more time to build the community. For me, it's, it's all about, I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but I've never done any sponsored content. I, I only just make videos and give them away for free. I will do sponsors down the line, but mm. at this point, it's all about just building that community and engaging with them as much as I can. I've still replied to every single comment I get on the channel, and there's a lot. I think there's 14,000 yeah, comments. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. Um, mm. So, you know, more more of what I do at the minute, um, more content, etc. I've just moved house, actually, so that I can build out a studio. Um, I'm now sat in, I don't know if there's an echo, but I'm sat in an empty room. Um, in my, I literally moved today, just come in, had fish and chips, and then sat down to have a conversation with you. So I've got, a, I've got, a, I'm in the loft at my old place, and now in this place, I've got a whole double bedroom that I'm going to kind of like YouTube, so that I can systemize the content a little bit more and have different angles and stuff. So that's part of the awesome. plan. Mate, I appreciate you speaking to me. If I just moved house, I'd, I, there's no way I would be, I'd be talking to anyone. <laughs> that's the last thing you want to do, isn't it? So I appreciate it. When you've got a side hustle that's takes up every minute of every day everything's a hustle <laughs> like it's you know everything everything is everything is hard work nowadays so yeah i'll quit my job but no I, I enjoy i enjoy speaking to people on the other side of the lens because it makes me realize that there's a whole there's real people out there everything at the minute is me sat in my loft and editing videos and then putting them out and typing i rarely get to engage with real people so i i, I always jump at the chance at something like this because you're someone within the industry and you're also a real person who I found out doesn't live too far away from me. Awesome. Well, look, thanks. Um, thanks so much for coming on the on the podcast, mate. I really appreciate your time. Um, I think getting your insight on some of those things is really interesting. Um, for anyone who um, hasn't come across Damien, do you want to just give us? Uh, I mean, it's Damien talks money. It's on YouTube, isn't it? It's, that's that's where yeah. you can find all the content. But um, thanks very much for for coming on the show, mate. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And guys, if you want to check out um, Damien's YouTube channel, obviously you can find it on YouTube. I'll put a link in in the show notes to to all of Damien's um, social pages and his on his channel, so you can check it out there. And um, well, and nothing really. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Hope you found that episode useful, guys. I uh, think there was a lot of stuff in there. We talked about some of the more basics or fundamentals of investing, like you know, active versus passive funds, um, you know, managing costs, those sorts of things. And then you know, we also talked about some more. Uh, advanced topics I suppose like the, the um, particularly around the staking of the crypto I think that's definitely something to uh, that's of interest to, to that I'm keen to look at a little bit more I think you know there's definitely some risks around that particularly counterparty risk um, you know you don't have anything like the financial services compensation scheme so it's definitely a higher risk approach um, so it's definitely not something you should do without doing some further research but these are all the kinds of things that i think are really worthwhile and in, in why i want to have these chats because it brings more um brings more topics to the service that i probably <clears throat> wouldn't necessarily have come to you with off my off my own bat so a lot there and i really appreciate damien taking the time to have a chat with me if you want to check out his stuff like i say it is damien talks money on youtube the link to his uh, channel is in the show notes there's also a link to my um obviously the hedge.io where you can find all, all my stuff but also my instagram i'm going to pop a uh, a link down there because i'm going to be more active on there one of the uh, resolutions or goals for me this year is to be more active on Instagram. I want to give that a red hot crack and see how I go. So for the next three months, I'm going to be posting every single day 
I'm going to be putting up information. I'm going to be putting up content, short form content, money tips, investing tips, that sort of thing. And I'm going to see how it goes. If I get a lot of engagement, if people are into it, if it's providing value, then I'll, I'll keep doing it try and get through to a full year of posting every single day but to start with I'm going to try with three months and see how we go um, you can just find that you can search my name Jason Mountford or the actual handle is Jason Mountford Money um, the link to that and everything else is at thehedge.io and do jump on and, and grab your free copy of that ebook Modern Investing Fundamentals I've got a lot of really good feedback on it um, a lot of people have, have already got in touch with me and said that they've enjoyed it, that they've got some value from it. It's free. You've got nothing to lose. Um, if you go on the website, literally the first thing you'll see there is email address um, to enter and get enter your email address in and get a free copy and it will be with you um, within a couple of minutes. So definitely jump on that and please do let me know what you think of it. Um, other than that, guys, as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show and I look forward to speaking to you next week.